The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live, our daily webcast and podcast. I'm Lauren Rublin, Senior Managing Editor of Barron's. Thanks for joining us today for a market update and a look at stocks in the news. My guests are Barron Senior Writer Nick Jasinski and Barry Bannister, Chief Equity Strategist at Stiefel. Welcome, Barry and Nick, and thank you for joining me today on Barron's Live. Hi, Lauren. Thank you. A pleasure. So, Barry, I want to clue you in on a little secret. At Barron's, you have actually been our guide to the market this year. Last fall, you set an S&P price of 4200 for the middle of 2023. You noted that the market typically shows seasonal strength in the year's first half. And we were very taken with that and kind of followed your advice. And you've been right about it. The index hit 4200 last month, and it's continued to climb. And recently, you raised your target to 4400 for the second or third quarter of the year. So tell us what's behind the increased forecast and where you expect stocks to head thereafter. Yeah, just looking back in the last year and, and this year and the last year, um, back in 2022, we entered the year with a double digit correction call and it was fairly complex. It had to do with something called convexity. It's a bond concept. And that is when real interest rates rise just slightly the price earnings ratio of the growth stocks would fall quite a bit, and they did. Um, we got the bottom in March 15th and uh, in June within either the day of or days. Where we failed in 22 was, you know, bull markets climb a wall of worry and bear markets slide down a slope of hope. And so I never heard that one. Thanks for telling me. <laughs> but when the market would fall back, uh, we, um, you know, we had not uh, been quick enough to react. So we got the bottoms, but not the little mini tops. But in October, we said that within six months, we'd be in the back in the low 4,000s and our targets 4,400. Um, the growth stocks naturally lead when inflation slows and the economy avoids a recession. You get what's called a, a quasi disinflationary boom. It pushes you up into a uh, into growth stocks. Uh, lower inflation helps the PE, lack of uh, recession helps their cyclical nature. So big tech led. Um, but what I think is going to happen now, Lauren, is that um, we're going to see a broadening out into more what they call cyclical value, basic materials, industrials, um, and uh, even the banks are due for a bounce. And, you know, this bull market has confounded a lot of the uh, experts and uh, we had felt going into it that there was just too much money in the system to call and, and tightness of labor to call for a classical recession. So I'm I'm thinking about the banks. They're about to be even further regulated. Well, the, the smaller banks definitely have some shortages of reserves, but I think QT ends very soon as the Treasury has to rebuild its uh, cash balances at the Federal Reserve after the debt ceiling was lifted. Um, I also think the um, 
commercial real estate is a little overdone. We've had bank issues in the past, and this is where having history matters. You know, I was around in the 1980s and the 1990s, and I even covered banks on the buy side 30 years ago, um, and um, 35 years ago. <clears throat> and I can tell you that, you know, banks have been through a lot worse. Uh, the commercial real estate thing is a little overblown. Uh, in terms of collateral values going up, reserves being adequate, and type A, you know, class A versus class B buildings, there's a difference uh, in terms of occupancy. So I'm not, I'm not as worried about the banks, um, but um, you know, clearly we've had a slowdown, and that's why the market's breadth has been narrow, among other reasons. But I think that the avoidance, or you know, it's it's actually the avoidance of recession is the bad news. And that's because we're going to bump up against resource constraints by the end of the year, or beginning of next year, and the Fed may have to start hiking again. I'll be out by then. But uh, right now, uh, we're, you know, we're positive, and I think the breadth expands. The equal weighted S&P will start catching up a little more to where the cap weighted has been going. Well, it's an yeah. unusual forecast, and so many people on Wall Street are expecting the Fed to cut. Uh, <laughs> well... They are politically, and, and it's a mistake. I, I you know, one of, I, I think that in terms of research, you have to have hard skills and soft skills. And um, the hard skills are obvious, you know, understanding fiscal and monetary policy and understanding economics. But the soft skills are to think, understand things like politics and geopolitics. You know, we're getting pretty close to the 24 election. The Fed doesn't have a lot of history of hiking into the election years. And um, given, you know, the outbreak of populism, which we had called back in late 2016, before the 2016 election, Trump-Clinton, um, populism is anywhere and always a threat to the central bank. So I think that the Fed will be reticent to tighten too much. And um, that's something we'll be talking about more uh, you know, later this year and early next year. Hey, Barry, how, how important is the uh, reopening and, and resumption of demand in China for the your bullishness on materials and industrials seems like things are not going quite as as well as hoped there yeah that's a good question uh uh nick i think one of the things that 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 struck me is that you know and why we knew there would be no recession in the classical sense is that we poured just an extraordinarily excessive amount of money into the economy um there was way too much fiscal associated with covid we spent more than twice as much in, as Europe and multiples more than China on direct aid. 25% um, of GDP, 27% year-to-year growth in March of 2021 in M2 money supply. There are trillions of dollars that were just lying around. And so that, that and the inflation of net worth at all income quintiles, believe it or not, uh, we've looked at the Fed distributional accounts. Even the bottom quintile through home equity has been getting a good lift. Um, that because of that, it, with China, they didn't spend as much money and people had their initial reopening pop. But uh, consumer spending is still solid. Consumer sentiment is still solid. Uh, older people are retiring. Younger people will be hired. I think what you'll see is that after a quick start out of the gate in first quarter, a second quarter cooling, they'll resume a more normal growth path in third and fourth quarter. Plus, the Chinese are saving some of their stimulus ammunition for when they get a clearer picture of the back half. So you noted in a recent report that the post-war average for year-over-year -year growth in headline inflation is 3.7%. And that leapt out at me because the Fed is really holding fast to its 2% inflation target. So, Barry, how do you see the Fed's inflation fight 
playing out here? You mentioned hiking later in the year or early next year, but how do you see that inflation number going? CPI all items, which is the headline CPI, which includes food and energy, is uh, averages 3.7 in the post-World War II period. That's 3.7. But core PCE, which is called, called core personal consumption expenditure deflator, it's a different series, different economic government agency. Um, that's 2% is the Fed's goal. Now, there, the difference between the two is typically about 25 basis points. So, I do think over the longer term, and it depends on AI, but uh, I, I do think over the longer term that the outlook for core PCE deflator is closer to three. So you would have um, you know, wage growth, productivity, the net effect would be about three. Uh, I don't think the Fed will quibble too much over the coming years between three and two. Um, they'll prefer it to stay in the range rather than just a hard and fast 2% number. So I don't, I'm not too worried about uh, inflation. You know, we've done fight quite well in the past at, uh, you know, uh, between 2.75, 3.25 on core PCE. It's not the end of the world. Um, the, um, the consumers don't really notice it that much at that level either. Right. It's a lot different from eight and nine that we saw earlier in the year. Oh, yeah, it is. Or, or last year, rather. <laughs> So what do you make of Friday's jobs numbers? Last Friday, the numbers were surprisingly strong for May. Well, they, they were on the on the establishment survey, which is the bigger survey. Correct. Uh, they Not were, on the household. Yeah, the household was weaker. Uh, that unemployment rate popping up was interesting. You know, um, there is, in terms of longevity and accuracy and slight leading but coincident, um, there's no better indicator of recession than uh, a modification uh, that the great Peter Berezin did, uh, BCA. He modified the SOM rule, S-A-H-M, SOM rule. And it we is, recently interviewed Claudia SOM. Yeah. And basically what he found was that when the three-month moving average of the U3 unemployment rate rises 33 basis points, it's pretty much you are now in a recession. So we went back and tested it since 1945. Uh, we took all available data and we found, yes, it does work, uh, that you get the payrolls the first Friday of the month. And uh, there's, you know, essentially it's a one month difference uh, lag. But then since you get it the first week of the month, it's basically coincident that if I see the U3 pop up 33 basis points, it went up 20 basis points or so on the last number. But that was not a moving average. If the, the three month moving average goes up three 0.33 or 33 basis points. I'll call a recession. Also, I'll confirm it against uh, uh, 15 to 20 basis point up move, three month moving average of what's called permanent unemployment. And that's uh, not on temporary layoff. Uh, those are, you know, longer term unemployment. So, um, you know, that's a very important indicator because there is no such thing as a recession without jobs lost. Right. So it's a very late cycle. It's a very late cycle indicator. And that's, and that's really important. And that's part of that Fed political thing I was talking about. We found that when uh, the, the month that recessions began since 1945, there've been 12 recessions, um, the unemployment rate peaks on average 260 basis points higher than when the recession started. Since the low was a month and a half ago, it was 3.4. Let's say it's 4.5 in the fall. Uh, you could add it and you'd be at 7% at unemployment and the peak is 14 months after the 
the recession starts. What is 14 months after the late summer, early fall of 2023, November of 24? Good point. Uh, it would be the height of naivete to believe that the Fed is not cognizant of the political ramifications of their actions. And so um, I think they know that a 7% unemployment rate, what we found since 1970 is that there were um, six presidents eligible for a second term, four of them lost at above six and a half percent unemployment, um, four of them out of six. And the only two who won, uh, Reagan in 84 and Obama in 2012 were coming off major peaks. They could argue that things were getting better, not at peak. <laughs> uh, and uh, and also, you know, if you ever met them, I met Reagan. I never met Obama, but they're very. Those were very charismatic uh, people. Indeed. Um, and um, all right, we don't have to get into charisma on cannabis. No, but charisma, charisma, you know, really helped them win. And so, you know, the Fed has got to be cognizant of the ramifications of causing a recession. I think that when they get the relief on, on inflation that I'm expecting, they will cut and run. They mm -hmm. will be reticent to hike. The question is, in 24, how do they explain the fact that we're bumping up against resource constraints, that inflation might start ticking higher after bottoming? This will not be a pretty picture for them. And uh, markets will just have to figure out what they're going to do. Mm -hmm. Well, we'll have you back on before then to tell us. I think first quarter of 24 will be quite eventful. Yeah, sounds like it. Sounds like it. So I want to toggle over to Nick for a moment and talk about companies in the news this week. And then we'll get back to some of the stocks and sectors you like. Yeah. So, Nick, I want to take a bite of the apple. Apple's annual app developers conference starts in about an hour. The stock is trading at an all-time high. Can this company do no wrong? What happens now? Yeah, it's the uh, it's a big week for Apple. They're they're widely expected to unveil this what they're calling a mixed reality headset. Um, so that's combining virtual reality and augmented reality. Um, you can see your surroundings, or it's uh, the virtual reality is is you're in this headset, and, and that's the only thing you can see. Um, and this is really this is the company's entry into the metaverse. Um, it's unclear at this point how much that will add to sales and earnings in the near term. Um, but there's certainly plenty of excitement around it. Um, I think that it's, we're, it's a good bet that with everything going on these days, management will will uh, have some presentations or some comments at least about what Apple is doing and artificial intelligence as well. Some upgrades to Siri maybe. Um, I mean, investors are clearly buying into the hype the Apple stock right now is at an all-time high. If it closes where it is, it's up almost 2% today, just over $184. Um, that's about 3% away from a $3 trillion market cap, and it's at 30 times earnings. So there, there's a lot of good news priced into this stock. It's above the um, average analyst price target. Um, I, I mean, it's it's not just Apple alone. It's it's this melt-up in, in all these large-cap stocks um, to, to start the year. Um, right. But I, right. it's a... Uh, it's yeah, it's at a record high. The valuation is not cheap. Um, a lot has to go right for for Apple. What's your personal feeling? Do you want to go out and buy a virtual reality, augmented reality headset? Um, I don't know if I'm going to be able to afford it. From all the stuff that, that I've been reading, <laughs> it's going to be like over three thousand dollars. I guess we'll find out soon, but um, um, probably not this version. I'll wait for the cheaper one in a couple of years. That's incredible. There's so much hype over something that is so expensive. Yep. And it won't be subsidized by Verizon and AT&T. No, I don't think it will be. No, that is, that is amazing. So Barry, I wanted to talk to you about what Nick just said. 
this melt-up in big tech stocks. And many are tied to artificial intelligence, which seems to have been the theme of the year. What do you make of this kind of narrow market breadth? And you mentioned earlier you expect the market to broaden out. How will that transition happen? Well, we we take a very you know we take a very detailed look at at things like industrial production, uh, how PMIs are affected, durable goods, um, financial conditions index. We like the uh, GS US FCI, the Goldman Sachs US Financial Conditions Index, is particularly well constructed. Um, it is a uh, excellent indicator for the market in terms of stress. And uh, so what we, we, we've come to the conclusion that it looks like a pretty mild slowdown uh, in industrial production, PMI, manufacturing, uh, composite PMIs, and so forth. And as a result of a mild slowdown, yes, you, you get very little earnings growth, but what you get is the potential for the price earnings multiple to rise as both real and nominal longer-term 10-year Treasury yields pull back. So the yields pull back, the PE can rise, the earnings are really not the entire story. Um, when you have inflation cooling and growth comes in, economic growth comes in better than expected, uh, we found that for many decades, uh, it pushes you into one of four quadrants. It pushes you to the top right, which is um, a disinflationary boom, cyclical growth, which is your media, entertainment, software, semiconductors, tech hardware, which is Apple, uh, retailing even, which is Amazon, uh, particularly if oil is, is not particularly strong. Um, Tesla has dominated autos. I think it's 85% of the auto sector now. And so it, it falls into that tech group. Um, that's been the story. And what we think is going to happen now is more the equal weighted S&P, particularly the cyclical value, the basic materials, capital goods. These are things like, you know, cat and deer, um, the um, banks, uh, diversified financials that don't have some of the funding issues. Uh, they would get a rally. And uh, so we are, we are expecting a rally or a catch-up rally in some of those cyclical value names after this run has happened now on cyclical growth. But the main message is that our message this year has been, been be cyclical, not defensive. So avoid food and beverage and utilities and, you know, pharma and uh, energy, which is actually defensive. Um, it's a stagflation trade. Uh, what we've said is be more cyclical. So remind me again, what is the ticker of the uh, of the equal weighted index? We'd like to look at that. I forgot the ticker. Uh, it's on Bloomberg. I don't know it any okay. other place, but it's SPW. Okay. The, and it, 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 there's, a, there's an ETF, which is RSP is the ticker. That's the one I was thinking of for people who want to track the broader index and not just the cap weighted S&P. So yeah. thanks for that. So, Nick, I wanted to go on and ask you about a couple of companies reporting earnings this week. I thought we would start with Brown Foreman, the big liquor company. We know that, sure. beer, that the beer market has been struggling, but what about the market for the harder stuff? And what about the market for Brown Foreman stock? Yeah, the, the, um, the liquor business is a good business. There's, there's wide profit margins. Um, it's very consolidated. Brown Foreman, Diageo, a couple other um, companies have these stables of, of dozens of different major brands. Um, Brown Foreman has Jack Daniels, Finlandia Vodka, Chambord, Woodford Reserve, um, El Himador Tequila, a whole lot more. Um, it's, it's interesting. It's one of the few uh, industries where your inventory actually becomes more valuable over time. A 15-year-old whiskey versus a, uh, versus a one-year-old whiskey actually becomes more valuable, and most other um, consumer 
consumable things it goes the opposite direction um right. and sure. and this just the the long-term trend is people are consuming more alcohol both in developed and developing markets and and more premium alcohols um so more expensive liquors and that helps companies like brown foreman it's also somewhat defensive um unfortunately when economic times are tough people tend to drink more um so the result is Brown Foreman, Diageo, these are all, it's a pricey stock and it likely always will be. Um, Brown Foreman right now is at 31 times earnings, which just looking at the chart is actually significantly below its long-term average. Um, this is their, um, on My Wednesday goodness, morning. What is the long-term average? Uh, it's closer to 40. Um, wow. Um, so this is gonna be their fiscal fourth quarter report on Wednesday, which means that they'll give guidance for the year ahead. And I think that'll probably be more important than the numbers for the quarter, which is gonna be a little bit noisy because there are some one-time items that are gonna impact the comparisons to the year ago period that have to do with their inventory and supply chain stuff from a year ago. Um, the, the historical algorithm as they call it is, is it's just, it's mid single digit uh, revenue growth and high single digit earnings growth. And as long as they come in somewhere near that for the guidance for the year ahead, I think it'll it'll be a positive reaction for the stock. And the company reports on Wednesday and the ticker is BF.B. So thanks for that. How about GameStop, the video seller? It also reports this week. Is it still a meme stock? And even so, would the outlook for earnings matter? Yeah, this is also Wednesday. This is Wednesday after the market closes. Different business than Brown Foreman. Um, not really a stock that trades on fundamentals. Um, no, I mean, hardly. just just when you look at the chart and, and the stock price, it's it's driven by the ebbs and flows of retail investor enthusiasm in GameStop and AMC Entertainment, and uh, was until recently Bed Bath and Beyond as well, which is no longer trading. Um, as for what is expected for the quarter, there are, I'll just say there are only two analysts who cover GameStop, so so the, these numbers probably aren't worth that much. They're expected to sales are expected to be down about three percent. Net loss is $45 million. Um, they did have a profitable quarter um, in their fiscal Q4, which covers the, the holiday period. So that's always the strongest. Um, that was the first time they had a profitable quarter since the holiday period of 2020. Um, when they reported that this past March, the stock jumped 35% the next day. Um, it's up it's up 31% in May. Again, no clear reason. Um, it's been between $15 and $26 most of this year. Um, it's just it's 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 not something that you can really predict with any confidence um management has been selling stock opportunistically to cover the losses from the business they're also working to cut expenses um but just when you think of the big picture the business of selling video games has gone digital there's just much less need for a physical retailer like gamestop and and all the uh the the peripheral stuff that they're trying to sell around that getting into nfts um i don't think that's gonna save the business or, or really justify it's it's market price, um, and the trends are, are not reversing anytime soon. Um, and so yet it's, to... still, it's still here, and it's it, as you said, it had a quarterly profit. Yep. So interesting. So, Barry, I want to come back to your long-term view of the stock market. I was pretty astonished to read in your March 23rd report that despite this year's impressive rally, and it was even impressive back then, you expect the S&P to be flat in the current decade, leaving the price in 2031 about where it was in 2021. So why is that, especially as corporate earnings are expected to double? Yeah, one thing, Lauren, that's interesting is while we've been on this call, S&P 500 is up about 11 or 12 points, and we just crossed into a bull market if we close at this level. In other wow. words, 20.06. Uh, off the October 2022 low, it's 20.06 at this second. 
Now, the equal weighted S&P, which you asked about earlier, by the way, um, that was up 21.74% through February 2nd of this year. In other words, from the October low to, um, uh, to February 2nd. Now it's only up 12.5%. I think it'll close the gap. And that's, like I say, the cyclical value sort of catching up. Um, but on the longer term, yeah, back in, you know, I think it was June of 2019, I did a Barron's interview and I said that the S&P return over the next uh, 10 or so, 11 years through the 2020s would be about, <clears throat> about three, maybe 4% per year. And uh, that's a pretty low return. Uh, those are called secular bear markets. You know, from 2000 to 2013, the S&P was pretty much the same price. Mm -hmm. uh, from uh, the late 1960s to 1982, it was pretty much the same price. Um, and you can go back farther to the early 1900s and find several, couple, a few other instances. Um, that's the market we saw coming. In other words, over the, over the course of a decade, uh, we would expect price earnings multiple to compress while earnings grow. In other words, PE down, E up, price flat. And so that plus the uh, tenuous geopolitics, the outbreak of populism, the gradual erosion of Fed independence in the, in the wake of what we now have, which is called fiscal dominance. You know, after the debt ceiling, uh, I noticed that 85% of the budget was pretty much off, off limits. You know, it was all for show. And right. I think there was there was an argument about just a sliver of the budget. Right. And and so there's no appetite there to cut spending. The problem is the average maturity of federal debt is about 72 months. So over the next six years, that debt will reprice and the interest burden to the Treasury will go up very fast. Uh, the last time that happened, I was a buy side analyst in the late 80s uh, up until 92 when I went to the sell side. Um, you know, we had a thing called the bond market vigilantes. And they attacked the uh, Treasury market for being uh, somewhat reckless with debt, forced George Bush Sr. to um, raise uh, taxes, which pretty much cost him the 92 election against Bill Clinton, among other things. Um, and um, you know, a, a reattack of the bond vigilantes is coming later this decade, and the Fed will probably resort to something called yield curve control. Um, that is to say, they put a cap on the tens um, and uh, uh, do more QE at the short end. Uh, and we did that in 1942 to 51, then ostensibly for World War II, but the war ended three years later, and they continued that policy for six more years until 1951. Um, that is coming back later this decade. And what happens then is inflation is above average. There's a lot of fiscal. Monetary policy is too easy. Um, and price earnings multiples fall. Nominal earnings grow because you have inflation added to real growth. Um, gradually, it'll descend into stagflation. But that's not today's problem. That's 10 years from now. It will be a major problem. Um, and what will happen is earnings grow, PE falls market ends up in a wide, broad, decade-long trading range. So I think we're going we're gonna to trade in that range. And, uh, you know, it pays now to be a contrarian in terms of your investment strategy. When everybody's bearish, you're bullish. And when everybody's bullish, you turn bearish uh, because you're stuck in a range. Uh, that was the ideal trading strategy from 1966 to 82. Uh, that was the, you know, a pretty good trading strategy from 2000 to 2013. Um, and let me ask you, do you pick stocks in this period or do you just go with the index? 
and bullet points. No, no. The, the strategy that we're going to, we've continuously employed is, is since, you know, since 2019, and then I talked about it in greater detail later, was, you know, active, meaning just pick the right stocks, will beat the passive. <clears throat> if you buy the SPY or <clears throat> S&P 500 index, you'll end up flat. And it won't be a very pretty picture. But if you overweight things like uh, in big rallies uh, tend to be growth led, and that's where we are now. Uh, so you gradually scale out, um, you know, uh, then uh, during declines, you would tend to buy more value on the dips like energy is now dipped quite a bit, you would start accumulating back some energy. Um, defensives, when there's fear of a slowdown or recession and cyclicals, and that was 2022 cyclicals when the recession fear abates and that's been 2023 um you write some covered calls when you're at the top of that range which i think is going to be close to 1400 on the s p over the next decade we're not likely to see that pop again in real or nominal terms one or the other um, this decade um alternative assets hard assets prime real estate ctas which are commodity trading accounts professionally managed now don't try to do it yourself mm -hmm. Um, uh, I like hedge funds, you know, macro hedge funds or market neutral long short uh, that uses uh, leverage. That's not a bad place to be. Um, I like international. International tends to overweight value. It benefits as the dollar weakens. And I think it's not going to be as dire as people think, but I think the dollar will weaken over the course of this decade, particularly if the yen revalues and China follows them uh, up. China really does bench off of the Asian neighbors. Um, and uh, small cap. Uh, so small cap would tend to outperform large cap as the reflation becomes more embedded. So, you know, my my personal strategy is more more uh, more of a value bent, but willing to play the growth rallies like this one. And I, I love I love it. You're a macro playbook. Yeah, it's a it's a one pager in our slide deck, and it just goes through those line items that I just mentioned. Excellent, Nick. Did you have a question there? I don't, you might have lost Nick there. Anyway, I have a couple of questions from listeners. Are you yeah. set? Yeah. Um, we had a question from Mark. He wanted to know how the increase in oil prices would affect the Fed's decision on rate hikes. Any insight into that? I'm glad you asked that. Um, you know, one of the things I like to do is think out of the box. And the other thing I do is um, if you're a good trader and if you if you think in like if you think like the trader's mind, you you put yourself into the shoes of the other side of the trade. You're not dogmatic and you don't have your biases. You just say, well, what would the other guy be thinking or the other woman be thinking if uh, if they were you know on the other side of the trade? I think geopolitics come back in 2024. Uh, the U.S. has a lot of enemies, frankly. Um, I think oil is one lever that they have, um, and. Um, I think there'll be some action on the oil side in 24 in the summer driving season leading into the election in 24. Um, so, you know, any interruptions to supply from a major supplier, um, any uh, hiccups would cause oil to spike. Inflation follows oil, um, not just headline, but the core leak, you know, the, the commodities leak into the core. If you look at commodity prices, 13 week annualized rate of change, it leads core prices. Oil is the key uh, mm -hmm. because all of GDP is the conversion of energy, whether it's your, true. 
you know, whether it's your driving, whether it's your breakfast cereal, which required energy to produce transport package and so forth, uh, oil is the key. And uh, I, I, I personally think that uh, it might be wise to accumulate energy on weakness here, particularly energy services, because we're going to need a lot more of it, not more, a lot more investment. And we'll have a more sane approach to energy. Uh, right now, it's been a purist kind of like world's coming to an end kind of strategy uh, politically. And it's uh, crimping supply and giving power to people who can hold the U.S. under this sword of Damocles, this oil supply, such as OPEC. So uh, energy is worth buying on dips. Um, and uh, unfortunately, you know, most of tech is worth selling on major spikes. Uh, and uh, we're just going to trade around that for, well, 10 years. That makes sense to me. So I want to I bring Nick back in and go to a few more listener questions. Nick, Brian wants to know some of your top stock calls in the, communi in the communication sector besides Google, Meta, and Netflix. I know you used to cover communications very closely. Do you have any particular thoughts about media and communications? I do. I mean, Brian, you picked three good ones there. Um, did. <laughs> I'll say uh, without without spoiling completely spoiling something I'm working on right now. Um, Disney is interesting to me. It's a controversial name for for reasons related to politics, of course, but 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 for reasons related to the business as well. Um, it's controversial on Wall Street. There there are these big open questions about the future profitability of the streaming segment. Um, it's similar in size to Netflix now, but it continues to bleed money while Netflix is is becoming more and more pop, uh, profitable. Um, and the other big question is about the cable segment, ESPN in particular, which right now remains a cash cow, but it's in steady decline. And I don't think anybody's arguing that people are going to start signing up for, for cable subscriptions again. Um, meanwhile, there's the parks business, which is doing spectacularly well, better than ever before. And that's even before the Chinese and European and other international parks have fully recovered from COVID. Um, the CEO, Bob Iger, is back. He's focused on cost cutting, generating free cash flow. That will help a lot. Um, the film slate for the second half of this year is strong, and that's really drives a lot of spending on other areas of business. business. Um, they've talked about bringing back the dividend in the coming quarters. So I think after, I should also add, after a few years of missteps and, and losses, the stock is trading for a relatively cheap valuation on what you could consider normal earnings. Um, so it requires a bit of a vote of confidence in Iger, and, and you want to see consumer spending hold up. But given all the negativity around Disney right now, I don't think it'll take too much good news to get the shares rising from here. And there are some catalysts on the on the horizon that should be positive. Um, what else is there in communication services? I don't really like anything in telecom right now. Um, oh, I'll, I'll mention um, Activision Blizzard. This is, this is which really it's a merger arbitrage play. Microsoft um, has agreed to buy the company which makes video games for $95 a share. Last I looked, the stock was closer to 80. Um, Let's see, $81 now, so a $14 spread to the deal price. And that's due to some regulatory opposition um, from the UK and the US. Um, meanwhile, the EU, China, Japan, and some others have cleared it, I believe. Um, Warren Buffett's uh, Berkshire Hathaway is a big investor in Activision. Um, Connor Smith and Andrew Barry from Barron's have, have been bullish on the stock as well, deal or no deal. Um, it's really, it's an interesting risk reward balance. Um, even if the deal doesn't go through, um, Activision stands to get a multi-billion dollar breakup fee. And the results have actually been quite good over the past year, but the stock has just been stuck in this deal purgatory. So it hasn't really gotten credit for that or for the rise in tech stocks since the beginning of this year. 
Um, so just getting the deal resolved the one way or another, either you get the $95 per share from Microsoft buying it, or Activision gets credit for the business, which has been doing quite well. So I think here at around $81, it's pretty attractive. Interesting. I'm glad you mentioned both of those. Good question, Brian. So I want to ask um, Barry, what do you make of the AI stocks? Lily wants to know, are these in a bubble? Um, well, what most of the AI we've seen so far is what's called LLP or large language processing. Um, it's just a glorified search engine. Um, you know, if you're an analyst or a strategist, you do about a hundred Google searches a day and you learn how to ask the right questions and get things very quickly. And what chat GPT, I went on their website, signed up and asked it about a hundred questions to figure out what it could do. And, you know, it's, it's more of an agglomerator of existing information that's on the internet. Sometimes it kind of um, exaggerates a little bit or glosses over things, but I have had people tell me that they could use it with programming. Um, and uh, whether it's R or Python and others, it, it helps a lot. But I've asked it some technical questions like about virus mutations and uh, uh, about R star versus R star star, which is two different uh, calculated uh, central bank rates. And it really wasn't able to help. Um, as far as automation goes, yeah, it, there's some jobs, you know, like, like a legal, paralegal where it might be useful. I think over time, though, what will happen is that it will help productivity create new types of jobs. Uh, I envision a world where people are hired with their AI programming. In other words, you hire not just the person, but the person's uh, sort of personalized AI, where it helps the diagnostician in the hospital with their job. And uh, maybe people will have uh, uh, their own AI proprietary AI that they've designed. Younger people than me, I will, I will definitely be out of this business by the time that happens. Uh, but um, <laughs> uh, I would say that in the bigger picture, on a macro level, if you look at what's called corporate GDP, this is the output of corporations, all non-financial corporations, not just the big S&P names, but just the entire economy. Uh, compensation of employees was about 63% of corporate output from 1948 to 2000. That's a long time. It plunged to 55%. So they lost, employees lost about 800 basis points. All of that went into profits. If you look at uh, GDP, profit share of GDP, it was around 28.5% from 1948 to 2000. It soared. Uh, about 700 basis points and it's begun to roll over. I think over the next 10 years, uh, compensation share goes up, profit share goes down, and more of that productivity is gonna be captured by labor, not just profits, but labor. And that's, you know, populism kind of dictates that the policies will support that. Um, so between inflation versus productivity, um, I expect, AI can hold down some of the inflation, but also boost the productivity, accruing more to wages than just pure profits. Corporate taxes will probably rise over the decade, and antitrust is going to be a major focus of the government for 10 years. Mm -hmm. and on AI, I think AI is uh, very exciting, but it's still in the earliest possible stages before it, uh, it has that much impact. So I don't know if the stocks are in a bubble or not, but that was a very interesting answer. And I'm glad you walked us through. They are. 
I mean, they are reflecting something that hasn't happened yet. But remember, if the over time, the real interest rate rises, if it does, uh, then you're not going to pay up for something 10, 15, 20 years into the future. Um, and so there's going to be a constant struggle of overpaying. Uh, bottom line, mm -hmm. I would overpay on the price earnings multiple of NVIDIA uh, uh, because uh, of some promise of 10 years out. Even mm -hmm. at exponential growth, it's going to take a while to really realize the full benefits of that. And I think all your listeners need to understand the cost of capital is not going to be low in the next 10 years. The cost of capital is going to be a lot higher than it was in the prior 10 years. That's a good point and a good point on which to end this. I really want to thank you today. Terrific conversation. And thank you, Nick, as well, for your contributions. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in. So I'm so glad both of you were on today. Thank you. Thank you. So tomorrow is Tech Trader Tuesday on Barron's Live. Eric Savitz, Barron's Associate Editor for Technology, will talk with Erica Clower, Technology Equity Portfolio Manager, and research analyst at Jenison about investment opportunities in tech stocks. And something tells me the conversation will continue on AI. So tune in everyone for that. And thanks again for listening today. Take care and have a good day. The energy transition is a long and winding road and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.